summer series to a close. And you're going to be hearing from someone who is not only uh, in his own right a leader, he oversees, David Brickner does, an extensive ministry that reaches all over the world. He's gone a lot. He shares a lot. Um, he represents Jews for Jesus, which is uh, an evangelistic ministry that reaches out primarily to the Jewish community, but also really uh, to anybody who, who they can touch. And so he's got a heart of someone who loves to see people come to know, uh, as they say, you know, we, we say Jesus, they say Yeshua, Messiah. You know, and David has this unique kind of background because he's kind of an expert on Jewish studies. So what happens, that's his training and background. And so he, he brings that into his, as you know, he sort of engages the scripture, you'll get a context that you wouldn't normally get. And you're going to see that in a few minutes. He's going to be able to share and add some richness and depth to it that we might not get, particularly around the Older Testament, but also as it relates to the New but one of the things about David, I'll just say this really quickly, and then I'll, I'll let him come up, is that um, he, he is someone who is also part of our church community and someone who is a very close, close friend of mine who I've come to love dearly, and I trust him. And uh, I've watched him uh, go, you know, in places where he's been given enormous, you know, just praise. He stays humble, and I've watched him walk through very difficult, difficult places, and I've watched him watched him maintain a steadfastness and a love for the Lord. He, there's no shaking of the fist. There's, a, there's an openness to the man as it relates to God. And so I think, I, I hope and believe you'll be blessed by what he's about to share. It has to do with stillness. We've already set that theme in motion. Can we give David, as we close out this summer, a warm welcome? Can we do that? Come on, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Terry. I always look forward to the opportunities I have to share here at Cornerstone because I'm at home. And uh, it's a blessing to be in my own congregation. Uh, and I've really enjoyed this summer series uh, as we've gone through it. And there's one particular weekend that stands out because it was one where I was uh, able to invite a number of friends to come with me. And one of them was a guy named Yaakov who is an Israeli and not yet a follower of Messiah. In fact, he is a professor of religious studies at uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And he'd come to San Francisco to visit many times, but this is the first time he actually asked me to come with me to church. And so I was excited, and as we walked in the door, uh, I looked in the bulletin, and Pastor Terry wasn't here. Uh, it was Louis Menjivar who was speaking, and Louis is, is our young adult pastor and one of the speaking team. And, uh, well, that's okay, but then I noticed that the passage he had chosen to speak on was one that was quite a bit controversial for Jewish people. It's uh, the, the time where God, you know, gives Peter a vision. Peter, who had been a religious Jew all of his life, who had kept kosher, and all of a sudden he sees this sheet lowered down with all these non-kosher animals in it, and the voice says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And I'm thinking, oh, great, you know? <laughs> now what's going to happen? And I have to tell you that I was, as the service progressed and as Lewis gave the message, I was really blessed with the sensitivity that he showed to the passage as he unpacked the story, how thoughtful and careful and 
interesting it was. So as I was prepared to go out to brunch afterwards with Yaakov and my friends, I was really interested to find out what he thought. So we sat down to eat, and I said, so Yaakov, what did you think about my church? He said, well, I like the music. <laughs> I said, OK, so what about the message? He said, I would never invite that young man to speak to one of my classes. I said, really, why is that? He said, because when my students heard him, they wouldn't want to listen to me. <laughs> but he said that Lewis had given him a number of things to think about. And it just reminded me of what a privilege it is to be a part of such a great community as Cornerstone, where there's such sensitivity and yet thoughtfulness and directness in sharing the love of God with so many people. And so it's a privilege for me to wrap up this summer series, and I thought I would do it by teaching us a song. Now, we don't have to sing the song, but you can see it in your handout because we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 46. And many of us know that the psalms were originally set to music and were, in fact, sung by the children of Israel. And in fact, as we can see in the superscription here before verse 1, that's exactly what it was set up for, to the chief musician... That would have been the leader of all the music of Israel as it was celebrated and sung in the temple in Jerusalem. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song of Alamoth. And we don't know what Alamoth is. Perhaps it was one of the melodies that was used for this song. But here is this great song that was a very important song, and it was a song of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were Levites. They were priests, but particularly musical priests who used their gifts to lead God's people and worship in the temple. And so that background we know, and there is a sense, I've called this whole thing be still, because of course that's the most fa famous phrase that comes out of this psalm, but there's a whole backstory that when we understand it, gives the whole text even greater meaning. And we know something about that ourselves because perhaps one of the most famous songs that we sing here in our country is the Star Spangled Banner. You know, oh, say can we see, you know, and, uh, but what do we see, right? Uh, what are the words? What, what's the meaning of that song? And we've heard it sung in ballparks all across the country. And in fact, there is a historical reference to the battle of Chesapeake Bay back in the 1812 war between the British and the Americans. Francis Scott Keyes was there, and he witnessed the shelling of this fort and its defense. And it was a, a difficult time in America's history. In fact, Francis Scott Keyes wrote about it two years later, and the first verse of a four-verse poem became the song that we sing. So it meant a lot more to the people closer to when the song was written. And all great songs generally have to do with that kind of backstory. And, and so it is with this. Be still is like, oh, say, can you see? It's a phrase that comes back, but there's so much more. And you can tell there are actually three verses in this song, and each verse ends with that word, selah, which basically means chorus, or this is the end of the verse. And so the first section, the first verse, I've entitled The Stronghold of Security, verses 1 through 3. Let's read. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, 
and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. So these are very poetic phrases that bring back an understanding that this was a difficult time in Israel's history. The sons of Korah were priests during the reign of King Hezekiah. And there's a lot written about this king in the book of Kings in the Older Testament. And in this particular instance, it was a very difficult time because Israel had been invaded by the Assyrians and by a king, a famous king named Sennacherib, who came down with his armies from Nineveh and completely overwhelmed the Israeli army. A lot of the cities around Jerusalem had been sacked, and slowly, slowly, Israel's army had retreated to the point where all of them were hiding behind the walls of Jerusalem. Now, three times in this song, the word refuge is used. And in fact, that word, either translated refuge or stronghold, is also used in the Older Testament about Jerusalem. Because you see, Jerusalem, when it was captured by David, was from then on called the stronghold or the refuge of David. And so people understood that connection and that word, and Jerusalem at this time was their, their refuge, or so they thought. And now, now all of a sudden they were surrounded. And it didn't seem such a comfortable place. Geographically, Jerusalem was a very defensible city, but now, now it wasn't working out that way. And so here is King Sennacherib and all of his armies gathered outside the city. The people are inside, protected for now, but it didn't look good. And every day, the king and his emissaries would come up and they would make an announcement within the hearing of all the people inside the walls. And we see that at the top of the right column in your handout. Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Imagine yourself in that city at this time, trapped without a whole lot of confidence in what was going to happen. Archaeologists who excavated Nineveh found a clay cylinder from Sennacherib that had a bunch of stories about his conquests. And on them is a story that he tells. I have Hezekiah trapped like a caged bird in Jerusalem. And so he did. And what was a refuge? What was a stronghold of security for the people of Israel seemed to be dissipating. And so as the song goes... They were discovering it's God who is our refuge. We move on to the second section, the second verse of the song in verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. Remember that. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted, the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. 
I've entitled this second section or the second verse, Streams of Sustenance. Because there's this interesting reference at the very beginning there of the verse. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. See, Jerusalem was a very strong hold. It was a very easily defensible city except for one problem. There wasn't water inside the city. The main water source for Jerusalem was the spring of Gihon, and that was actually outside of the walls of the city, which was fine if there wasn't trouble. But once trouble began in the form of the Assyrian army and King Sennacherib, the water would be unavailable to the people. And as you may have heard, a human being can exist for as much as eight weeks without food, but only about eight days without water. Now, whether he understood and was preparing for the attack of the Assyrians or not, what we do know is that Hezekiah did some major work to prepare for this eventuality. And he made a way for water to be brought inside the city. And you'll notice on the right column, the second verse down, it says, it was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. And this was actually an amazing feat of architecture, of water tunneling. 1,750 feet right through solid rock to what we can see even to this very day, what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. In fact, some of us here at Cornerstone went to Jerusalem and we had a chance to walk through that tunnel and to see. Sometimes in the spring, the water can get up as high as chest high and it's very cold. But uh, there's an inscription that describes how this amazing feat took place, that the men were channeling in, digging in from either side and they would listen for one another and knock on the rock face and ultimately they were able to meet up. And this provision made a way so that even in the midst of this terrible time when they were surrounded by the Assyrians, food was growing short of supply, but not water, because through Hezekiah's tunnel, water flowed into the city, into what was known as the Pool of Siloam. You can see that pool as well today. That actually is only about one-tenth of the entire pool to the right, that wall, actually is an area that still needs to be excavated to dig out the entire pool. But this was a great source for the people, the main source. And it made glad the people, and especially the priests, especially the sons of Korah, because you see, that water made their job a little bit easier. On the day, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the job of the priests in the temple to take these giant cisterns, these clay cisterns, and they would march down originally outside of the city to the spring of Gihon. And there they'd fill up these, you know, hundreds of gallons of water that they'd carry in these cisterns all the way back up to the temple. And so when Hezekiah dug this tunnel, he made their jobs a lot easier. They didn't have to go all the way outside the city. They could just go to the pool of Siloam. And they would take this water from the pool and they would pour it out over the, the altar. And as the water flowed down from the altar over the steps, down the temple steps, they would sing and they would recite from Isaiah 12, 
With joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation. And so water became even more meaningful for those people because it wasn't just water. It was talking about God's spiritual provision for the people in this time. And we find in the New Testament, and you can see it in John there in your handout, Jesus chose this very moment to take this lesson and apply it even further. It says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Imagine Jesus saying this as the water's flowing down from the altar. Come to me. Yeah, Hezekiah's tunnel in the pool of Siloam is great. This is great, but I'm the one. He says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so Hezekiah's preparation in advance of this difficult time made way for Jesus to point out that he is the source of spiritual reality. In a dry and barren place, there is a way to have our thirst quenched. And that's when we come to Jesus. He is, in fact, our stream of sustenance. The third section, the third verse of this song I've entitled, The Stillness of Surrender. And it begins in verse 8 and goes through the end of the psalm. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. This is a time of conflict and people are thinking about war. They're surrounded with it. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. And here it comes. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Picture yourself in that city. Hope is gone. The armies of Israel, they don't have any strategy to overcome this overwhelming odds. Hezekiah has played his last card. And now his people are subject to the taunts of the king who has all the cards in his hand. And what does he do? Well, we find out in this passage in 2 Kings 19, verse 15. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, that's in the temple. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Isn't it interesting how <laughs> prayer is so often the last resort? It should be the first, but it's oftentimes when we have no other place to go that finally we quiet our hearts. And that stillness of surrender, we say, God, we've got nowhere else to go. And that's Hezekiah right here. The walls are going to be breached. The people are beginning to starve. The army has no strategy that's going to work. God, I'm aligning myself with you. You got to help. I don't know what to do. And that night, as the people went to sleep with that same sense of hopelessness that they had been carrying day after day, 
after day, God came through. And at the break of dawn, as the song says, something happened. We see it here at the bottom of the right column. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. And that's history. <laughs> that clay cylinder brags, I have Hezekiah trapped like a caged bird in Jerusalem. But unlike all the other cities that Sennacherib conquered, where he says, and I conquered the city, and I breached the walls, he could never say that about Jerusalem. He never did, because in fact, he had to return to Nineveh. There was a coup. He was assassinated, never to trouble the people of Israel again. Amazing. Amazing. The stillness of surrender is the point at which there is breakthrough. You know, when Jesus walked the face of the earth, there were storms on the sea, and he said, be still. And they were. They, they obeyed. And Jesus is still speaking to the storms of life today. He still can say that. Be still. And they obey. So just as there is a backstory to this song, so that backstory, I believe, has an application for us today that makes this song as relevant as it was to the people of Israel in Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. And I'd like to share just three reflections, one on each of these verses or sections, that hopefully will help us to access this for ourselves. I believe that we will advance in faith as we're able to relinquish those strongholds in our lives, those things that we're trusting in more than God. You know, it's, it's easy for us to say, God is my refuge until there is no other refuge. And then we find out how true it is. And when we live that, it becomes real to us been part of my story. I had my life just how I wanted it to be, just how I imagined. It wasn't without struggle, but it was great. I had a wife who loved me, two children who cared for me, who were great kids, friends all around me who loved me, and a, a, a ministry and a career that was everything that I could have imagined. And then one day, four years ago, my wife announced to me that she no longer loved me. And my whole world fell apart. And it just knocked me over. I didn't see it coming. And it didn't make sense. And I, I did everything that I knew how to do physically, personally, with advice from so many to try and make it different. But I couldn't. And I live with that pain to this day, and I still can remember having to tell the children, you know, what their mother was going to do. Having to tell my family and friends, and there's shame and fear. And 
You know, what do you do when you don't have all the things that you were counting on, that you were trusting, and that was part of your security? Well, you have to say, this is terrible, but God is good. He's my refuge. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have or are living it. And it may not be that kind of a thing, a relational breakdown of one kind or another. It may be that all of a sudden you find your health slipping away. And who saw that coming? Or your job is just not working out the way you wanted it to. You're in the midst of a crisis in your career, financial problems, whatever it is that upends our confidence in the things that we've been trusting. What do you do? That's the point where you realize God is my refuge is more than just words. It's the reality that we can stand upon. And we can also, like Hezekiah did, prepare for those times. We may not even see them coming, but it's so good when we can prepare. And I believe that we will advance in faith as we're able to dig channels, build channels in our lives through which the Spirit of God can freely flow to refresh us. We, we have to walk through such dry times in life, such barrenness. But we can prepare by digging out channels, building them, so that we can receive in times of barrenness. For me, I had a, a love of God's word that I had for a long time been studying and teaching. And so when this all came down around me, God's word was life and refreshing to me, even when I didn't want to read it. Couldn't bring myself to crack the Bible. I was so depressed. And yet the word was there, planted in my mind and in my heart. And it brought refreshing, and it still does. And then there's prayer, which is an amazing channel because it's not just talking to God and telling him and pouring out our hearts, but it's that silence of waiting and hearing his still small voice. And I can tell you, I would, in retrospect, would have loved to have a much deeper and profound prayer life. But I mean, which of us can say, hey, I pray enough as it is. <laughs> we can't and we never will. But Prayer, what an amazing channel that opens up for God to just breathe through his spirit, that living water that Jesus spoke of that refreshes. And there, there's certainly one other area for me that I didn't realize how important it would be in this time of dryness, but it was the relationships that I had built with a number of guys who were my accountability team, you know? And uh, I didn't realize how important it was. It was just great to get together, to pray with these guys, to hang out, to, to check in, to, to tell each other what's going on. But then, when everything started coming apart, they were there. They became my resource, my refreshing 
They upheld me when I was falling on my face. And so I'm so thankful to God that I was able to prepare, and I encourage that. You may be in the middle of it. It's not too late to dig the channel. It may be coming. You don't see it yet. Prepare. There's a stream. There are streams of sustenance that can nurture us through the most difficult time. And ultimately, it comes down to this. We will advance in faith when we are able to still our hearts, surrender our struggles, and allow the Lord to be exalted in our lives, come what may. One of the... uh, one of the results, one of the responsibilities of being in a leadership role in a ministry like Jews for Jesus is when this all came about, um, I had to submit my resignation to the board of directors. It was the right thing to do. And they had to have the freedom to decide whether or not I was the guy to lead this ministry forward. And boy, I knew I had to, but I didn't want to because I didn't know what the result would be. I I remember telling one of the guys, I feel powerless in the palm of providence. At the time, I thought that was very poetic. (laughs) But it really did express how I felt. Here I was. I knew I was in God's hand. But what could I do? It was really not up to me anymore. I'm so used to when a problem comes, you know, I can get in there and I can do something about it. I can fix it. I can help. I can think it through. But now all I could do was wait and rely on God and the people that he had placed over me to figure out what the right thing was. And oh, (laughs) time doesn't allow me to tell you the stories of God's favor and of those who came around me and how the board upheld me and chose to retain me in that leadership. It was a shameful, embarrassing process to have to go through, not just with them, but with all 140,000 people who read the Jews for Jesus newsletter each month. And yet, in the midst of it all, it was my coming to that point where I had nothing else but to surrender and say, okay, God, I can't do anything. It's up to you. Like Hezekiah turning to the Lord and saying, my options are out. That's when we know. That's when we discover, really discover. And the whole thing is that because we identify ourselves with the Lord, because we say, God, whatever you want, we know that in the end, he's God, right? (laughs) He's going to win. He's going to be victorious. So to the extent that we say, I want to be with you, and we hear his voice coming back and saying, guess what? I'm with you. I'm for you. There's the victory. Come what may. We stop fighting. He makes wars cease. We start listening, and we can hear his whisper. In a moment, the band's going to return and sing a final song that takes that thought 
forward for us. And uh, we'll also have our time of giving. But before that, let me pray. Lord, it is in the stillness of this moment that we ask that you would apply this song to our hearts. It was a great song when it was written, and it meant so much to the people who had gone through those things. And, but we want it to mean that much and more to us in our lives because we need the truth of what it sings about. We need it each and every day, more than we ever realize. You are our refuge. More than we will know until we desperately need, you are our sustenance, our stream, our refreshing. And in this stillness, Lord, we listen. We humbly submit. We, we pray, come what may, Lord, we are with you. We are with you in the difficult time because we want to be with you in the great victory that you bring because you are God and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 